Welcome to the Polycast with your host, Paul Samuel Dolman, student, seeker, and the author of Hitchhiking with Larry David. Now sit back, relax, and get conscious. Enjoy the show. Well, today I get to not only interview a great being, but a great friend. So it's an overlap, and... uh... A couple of years ago on the island of Martha's Vineyard, I was eating a salad at the Morning Glory Farm, and there was a smiling, beautiful soul sitting there too, and it turned out to be Lama Surya Das, who in his infinite generosity uh, ended up giving me beautiful boot beads for my uh, wrist and a whole bunch of great wisdom and um, even more laughs. A couple of years later, I was sitting in a cafe in Maui. I looked up. Somebody sat down next to me and asked how the internet worked, and it turned out to be the same wonderful Buddha, Lama Surya Das. And when we started the polycast, I made a list of about 10 people I'd love to have on the show. And Lama Surya Das was on that list, and he is here today. Welcome. Thank you, Paul. It's wonderful to get a ride with you, to hitchhike with you on the path. Didn't you write a book about hitchhiking with Larry David or maybe Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe or something very important and amusing? Wasn't that you? You're very kind. You're very kind to tee me up. I wrote Hitchhiking with Larry David, which was a popular book, and they might turn it into a movie. My fingers are crossed. That would be music. And that would be fun. And uh, actually, when you saw me and Marth, uh, when we ran into each other in uh, Maui, you looked at me for a second and you said, The Hitchhiker. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Because that's how I think of you. Also, because in a way, that's how we met. I don't think I picked up hitchhiking. I think I dropped in at that farmer's market and was sitting down with a coffee and a book baby on my laptop, and you were doing the same. Isn't that how we met? Exactly how we met. Yeah, right out there in Martha's Vineyard at the Morning Glory Farm. Yeah. It was kind of like like hitchhiking, random but purposeful, not accidental. Kind of like hitchhiking. Exactly. And if. And then we did it again in Maui, and then you were kind enough to invite me to come meditate with you and Ram Das and a bunch of other wonderful people down there on the beach. And then you had your great book signing in the vineyard, and we both ended up at an obscure pizza parlor <laughs> eating slices. It's crazy. Yeah, well, we're on the same path together like all of our listeners, so naturally we're rubbing shoulders and, you know, looking in the same direction, but asking many of the same questions and thinking about many of the same issues, whether it's outer, like about the endangered planet, or, you know, more local, like our presidential election, or other things that we are all dealing with, aging, or just, you know, life in general. So it's nice to talk to you and all who, who hitchhike on your great vehicle, Paul, and let's, you know, join heads and hands and hearts, not just rub shoulders together, everybody, but join heads and hands and, you know, do this together. It takes a village to make a better world and a happy life. Amen. 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 You, you're you one of the great ones at taking the, the teachings from the East, which are mysterious to a lot of us, and bringing them into a way that Westerners can understand. I know it's true, but I'm laughing at myself. We llamas and, and, you know, Asians, I put that in quote because, you know, I'm a New York motor mind, motor mouth. But we lamas and Asians and, and spiritual leaders like to keep it mysterious, so you need us. 
That's true. And by the way, it sounds like you uh, come from the east side of India. You're a llama with a New York accent, you know, or a Brooklyn, sort yeah, of a Brooklyn, New right. York accent. Yes. I'm the Buddha from Brooklyn, as it were. Can you give the crew a little bit of uh, background on how you be- went from um, New York guy to, to llama guy? Well, it's kind of, you know, not just a, a linear line like God created the world in the beginning and then it's going to end in some year. I think it's more circular and cyclical, like in Eastern thought. We think of it as more holistic, a hologram and all, and the whole is in the parts. So I, I kind of more like maybe I'm Buddha from Brooklyn, born in Brooklyn, but um, from, from Brooklyn to Buddha and back, that's what I would say. Because the rubber really meets the road in our daily life, wherever we are. And now, now I'm back. So watch out. <laughs> I love it. It's true, too. you got to make it applicable because most of us don't live up in the Himalayas with the yogis and the, and the mountain goats and the cobras. Exactly. And nor do we need to because what we seek is within. What we seek is everywhere, within all, within everything. Of course, Travel broadens the mind and soul, and it's fun and amazing and educational. Pilgrimage even more so, so I recommend it. But still, we have to come home to ourselves and our hearts and see the light here in our hearts and our heart and everywhere and everything, not just try to take a rocket ship to Mars or the sun or Tibet. If you go to Tibet, you might be disappointed because it's very China, communist-dominated. And even the Dalai Lama is not in Tibet. So you can go to India to meet him, or you can meet him in New York or America also. He comes here regularly. But it's not just about the Dalai Lama. It's about finding out true self, that spiritual masters and leaders and even practices are mirrors to reflect our, what's hard to see ourselves, our, our best self. Right. Do a U-turn and see who and what we really are, the Buddha within you have to sit in the chair, right? That's the Buddha in ancient history or the Buddha in Tibet. And um, that's what meditation and awareness and spiritual yoga and other such contemplative and awakening practices helps us to do. So I'm all for it. Is that the basic tenet of Buddhism, too, to just say, hey, look within and find the Buddha within? That's one basic tenet. You know, everybody explains things differently. If we're really going to simplify it, the Dalai Lama would always just to quote him because he's my mentor and inspiration, let's say, and I'm a Lama in Tibetan tradition. He would always say, the essence of Buddha, he would say, my religion is loving kindness. Hmm. But if he That's said it. Buddhism, which knows the difference, then he might say, the essence of Buddhism is wisdom and compassion in action. Oh, I love that. We have to try enough to know how to help and make a difference and not just missionaryize, proselytize, and stir up more trouble. Or memorize a bunch of ideas but never do anything about helping the suffering. Yeah, or, or memorize or get information but not transform ourselves, be less selfish and more you know, connected or empathic, feeling what others feel, not just preoccupied with ourselves. Again, that wisdom and compassion go together like the two wings of a bird, wise enough to know how to help and not just be codependent or need to be needed, make ourselves needed and be become the wounded healer by too much caretaking. So we call, we emphasize caregiving, not becoming like the codependent caretaker, 
So there's breathing out and giving and loving and service and also breathing in and receiving and loving and nurturing our inner heart and soul, ourselves, the Buddha within, the Buddha within everybody, not just within ourselves. Lama, how do we know the difference? How do we, how can we, how do we know the line between it? There's no difference really, but it's good to cultivate discernment and discrimination back to wisdom and awareness rather than unawareness and mind, living mindfully rather than mindlessly. The best definition of mindfulness is the opposite of mindlessness. We all know the downside to mindlessness. Being honest and candid with ourselves, not fooling ourselves, not just lying externally, but not deceiving ourselves, denial, rationalization, the white lies, and so on inwardly. So if we're truth seekers, we have to be true, true to ourselves, not just don't lie to the man, true to ourselves. And to do that, we have to be honest and awake, full, and aware, full, and conscious, not sleepwalking through our lives, having all kinds of so-called accidents due to mindlessness. So I think mindfulness is a great, you know, one of the essential Buddhist tenets, how to live a more conscious, intentional, awake life, rather than half asleep, or even worse, asleep at the wheel of our lives. So dangerous. Do we cultivate mindfulness by vigilance? just vigilantly being present, just being in the now? Yes, that would be everyday practice of mindfulness, not just meditating with our eyes closed or our legs crossed or sitting quietly. Mindful walking, mindful exercise, mindful talking, mindful eating, mindful contract like sex rather than just masturbating inside somebody else. Um, you know, reciprocity. So that's why I wrote this book about Make Me One With Everything to help us see through the illusion of separation, which is the subtitle, Buddhist meditation to awaken from the illusion of separation. So mindfulness, presencing in every activity is the way, not just meditating half an hour, an hour or two a day. That's enough. That's fantastic, but it's not enough. There's the other 23 hours of the day to consider how we bring it into everyday life, live aware and awake and open and, and honest and connected rather disconnected. What I love about your teachings, too, is that you have us bring it into everything. It's in the politics. It's in the Internet age. It's in the grocery line. It's everywhere. It's not just in the – not in your little room, your Buddha, by your altar. And, yes. and you talk about all kinds of stuff, the environment, political states. Well, we can't avoid that today. Otherwise, you know, we're – you know, fiddling while Rome burns, as they say, or as a Buddhist meditation teacher, twiddling, meaning our thumbs, we're twiddling while the world burns. And um, there won't even be any air to breathe and, and you know, concentrate your, on your breathing if we don't do something about the environment, the carbon levels, you know, climate change, the ozone layer, emissions, and so on. And... Um, we really have to occupy the spirit, not just leave it to the 1%, the presidents, the, the spiritual leaders. We've had a wonderful visit to this country by the Pope, the Hope Pope, as I like to think of him following Stephen Colbert's joke. But still, he also is having a hard time changing his church, not to mention our issues in politics, like in Congress and the Senate, which is so blocked and impacted. So we have to do our part, each of us pick up litter and recycle and 
think green or whatever you call it. Live more lightly on the earth. Maybe have less gas guzzling machines. I don't know. We, we just have to think about it, I think, and do our part and, and learn about it and be very uh, conscious and intentional if we care about our children and grandchildren's future, and I know we do. You wrote a great book, too, about how everything is sacred, and that's the thing that feels like the shift has to happen, that the planet is sacred, life is sacred, and that we need to uh, by, by first do it ourselves and then get involved and elect leaders that also see it that way and who will take action. Otherwise, the Titanic is going down. Yes, that's the problem. Um, you know, Robert F. Kennedy, RFK, before he was assassinated, that politics is an honorable profession, and nobody snickered. But who can say that today? So we have to do something about this and change the system, not just think about four years, important as it is to vote and make a difference in upcoming elections. But the whole world is in this kind of crisis. And yet this notion of holy and sacred, of course, it's not original to me. In fact, being a spiritual teacher, no one knows better than me. There's nothing new under the sun in this field, but it's so evergreen and beautiful, just like love. Every teenager falls in love feels like it's the first time and nobody's ever experienced this before. And that's how it should be in every generation, right, Paul? So everything is holy and sacred. Allen Ginsberg howled and sang, holy, holy, holy. Look at his poems. Look at his songs. And he filled the 50s and 60s, 70s, and until now with that message. Maybe it's a little forgotten. I don't know if people are reading Ginsberg today. He was of that generation. Great poet. Buddhist, too, by the way. And social activist. He helped bring in gay rights and so on back then. Um, I think it's important to consider for ourselves what this implies. Everything is holy. Everything is sacred. Like, all of life is sacred. Don't take life without great consideration. And not just human life. What about animal life? What about the, the nature? Just cutting down all the trees and so on without thinking. So I think holy, holy, holy is a great mantra to help me remember which is Allen Ginsberg's line of poetry. Everything is sacred. Of course, we live in a very secular, technocratic, materialist age, postmodern. Maybe people think God is dead. I don't know. I haven't seen her lately. Uh, maybe, maybe science is the new religion. I don't know. I mean, there's a new atheism sweeping the Western intellectual world. I don't know. But life is still holy and sacred. Who can witness the miracle of childbirth with children starting to walk or talk without feeling that sacredness, with or without any belief in God or religion? That's what sacred means, worth saving, sacrosanct, a gift, a miracle. Regardless of whether you believe in God and religion or not, it's a miracle. And we didn't necessarily create it ourselves. We have to bow down to the awesome vastness and mystery of life and the universe. I agree. It's so, I don't know that I can't understand it, but I can experience it and the whole mystery and the awe and the humbling nature of it, bring you to your knees and to tears of joy, all of life. And I love what Chief Seattle once said, man did not create the web of life. He's merely a strand in it. And if he destroys the web, he destroys himself and his own nature. And I you know, how 
the thing is we're at this place where we're aware, but we have to shift into action. You know, I think the planet would be fine without a, a biped that's kind of crazy and egoic, but it'd be a shame, I think, if it was squandered, this sacred opportunity to enlighten and evolve collectively and individually. Well, I, I'm glad you quoted Chief Seattle. Uh, I have a poster of his on the wall for many years in my study. And he was so recognized, and of course he was a Native American of the Pacific Northwest, a historical figure, and the white people were coming and taking over and cutting the trees and, and so on, you know, killing all the buffalo and the plains at that time all, and, and leaving their carcasses to rot and wasting all of that natural Native American resource just to take the skins. It was a big waste. Um, he talked a lot about interconnectedness and the circle of life and the sacredness of all creatures, not just his own tribe or not just human beings. And this is such a, a timeless yet timely message for us today, a universal message, whether you're a Buddhist or a yogi practitioner or a Hindu, you know, an Eastern thinker or just a green environmentalist who cares about the planet and the species and the future all of these things, you see this everywhere if we look deeply, but we live at such a fast pace today in this, like, time-famine era, this over-information age that we inhabit. Of course, we can take a break, we can step out, we can have a retreat, we can move to the country, we just have to find out, make our peace with it. Um, I live in the exurbs of Boston, so I have green around, but I'm also connected to people and things more than I used to be when I lived in the Himalayas or in three-year... Tibetan Retreat Center. Um, integration is the name of the game, Paul. Not seclusion, reclusiveness, or getting away from it all. No one can do it alone. I don't think this is the age to overly focus on self-growth and uh, self-improvement. This is the time for awakening together and a collective awakening. Otherwise, we are all endangered. And... Um, I have my own spiritual practices that I do for a few hours every morning and a little at night. And also, lead, you know, Zogchen meditation retreats and other things. But not everybody can get away from it. Also, have several kids and jobs or take care of failing elders. And this is as it should be. So let's find a way we can be live the sacred in everyday life, whether it's bringing mindfulness and loving kindness and compassion into every act we do, whether it's uh, working for others in, in, in selfless service, save us, service to God through serving humanity, save us, call it to be in Sanskrit, service to the highest, to serving the lowest. Whatever our, quote, spiritual life or humanistic life or best self intuitively, intuitively wants and needs, and we could look into that and follow our hearts and realize that the head is just like our office, but the heart is our home. And make this infinite journey from head to heart and beyond mm. to oneness, to the illusion of separateness. And then who would we harm? Who would we exploit? No one. And we root the seeds of anger and hatred and violence out of our hearts and minds and out of our collective consciousness and, see, and overcome prejudices 
and extreme dogmatic views that result like in terrorist violence and, and, and so on. So I think thinking locally, you know, uh, act, thinking globally, but acting locally and cultivating our own garden, which is part of the whole, is very important. So you asked before about the differences between the self and other and all that. They're all interrelated, like breathing out and breathing in, which is really the core practice in my most, it's my most recent book about breathing together and feeling each other's feelings and vibrating together and attuning. Like when twinning forks start to resonate together, they start to move in unison, and then we start to move in unison collectively towards a better future, a sustainable and beautiful, peaceful future. And remember, the future begins right now. So nowness is so important. It's now or never, it's always. That is profound. And when you talked about tuning, I saw an orchestra tuning up to play a beautiful one song together, Universe. But what you said, the head is our office, but the heart is our home. I'm going to, I got to have a bell ring when we, when I, when they do that. That's deep. Give me a gong for that. I deserve a gong. You're going to get a gong. We're going to have to get a Buddhist gong. We're going to have to pay the Buddhists for the license, their gong, because that is a big, that is, that the, that the Buddhist church bells ring. I know they don't have churches. The ashram bells ring. That is a big, that's a big sutra. And what I hear you saying, Lama, beautifully is, hey, take that time to connect to source yourself through your little practice. But this isn't a time to retreat from the world or society of each other, but to move forward in communal connection, communal enlightenment, communal uh, evolving, and then in communal activism. Because don't look to our leaders or the lobbyists or the oil or coal industry to somehow police themselves. God knows they can't. We have hundreds of years of history of that. So you... And you and your comrades, you and your brethren, bond together, meditate together, breathe together, evolve together, but then also take action together because it's up to us, not them, us and me, to make the change we wish to see in the world. Like Gandhi said, be the change we wish to see, not only on the inside, but you have to do it on the outside too. Because if you meditate all day, but the coal plant just goes on spewing carbon into the atmosphere and into the streams, there's pollution. You're not going to have a whole lot more time to meditate, especially when the water rises. So that's the, it's not the in, go inward personally, but come together outward. That's what I was hearing in your, in your message. And I think that's part of the message of the new book too. You know, go do it in the world. Onwards and inwards. It's a good balance to onwards and outwards, you know, but um, it's a balance of both really. So some, you know, just like some more extroverted, some more introverted. Some people's community or spiritual group is the home and the family, and others is, you know, at a house of worship or in the neighborhood where some is virtual or some is national, international. So, and at different stages of our lives, also, we have different, you know, core connections. So, breathing out and breathing in, Paul, just like sometimes one is at work and sometimes one's at home. Well, sometimes we're alone and sometimes with others. So it's good to have spiritual life or practices or remembrances that will kind of apply wherever one is. Because I repeat myself, integration is the name of the game, not just waiting until we can get away from it all to be quiet and pray or meditate or do yoga or merge with nature. 
nature is all around us, growing all around us, and through us, we're part of it too. We're growing too, just like things around us that are growing. Of course, the environmental crisis is a real issue, and the entrenched interests, the lobbies, and so on. It's very difficult to sort all that out, but we have to vote and think about and do our part about the system issue, changing the system as well as just recycling and um, driving a more fuel-efficient car and picking up litter and not littering, etc. For example, the Kyoto Treaty-like meeting in Paris is, is pretty soon, so there may be things we could do or elected officials could do or we could do about it or blog about it or write about it or do things in the new media that I don't really have a good grasp on that the younger generations could do to make a difference, to make an upswell of opinion and put pressure on the different countries to ratify those agreements and to actually keep them do something about them because we all share the same sky and the same waters. And as everyone knows, I hope by now, after the oil age of oil wars, there's going to be water wars. Water is becoming a very endangered natural resource, and there won't be drinkable water for the billions of people on our planet, not to mention the rising seas, melting ice caps, and other things, and the ozone layer. So this is a great concern for those of us who live internationally and see what goes on, like behind what used to be called the Iron Curtain. The Eastern European countries are still pretty drab and dingy, although they're trying to change their factories and their lives and their environment. Red China, still spewing coal into the atmosphere, etc. But, and I'm not an expert on this, I, st- I think it's still true that we Americans are the worst pollutants or carbon emitters in the world. Don't quote me on that. We are. No, we are number one. So that's still a little shocking when you go to those countries and you see how it is. And then you come home and it's kind of beneath the veneer of Al Gore and the Green Movement and all that. But still the worst polluters in the world. Shame on me. Shame on us. There's a great movie, too, that I saw recently called Cowspiracy that I would recommend that talks about how the um, industrial food complex actually is the number one cause of global warming and pollution, water pollution, uh, environmental degradation, both here in the United States and also globally. But it's very – the organizations like Sierra Club and all those, Oceana, they don't want to tackle it because the you know, the farm lobby, the industrial farm, corporate farm lobby is too powerful. So they've kind of backed away and been afraid of it. But that's a good one to know. And you're right about the water crisis. You know that the huge migration issue with all these refugees leaving the Middle East, cutting through countries – it's the war is part of it, but the larger issue I learned was lack of water and epic drought. They're looking for food and water and water to drink. That's going to be the next big thing. In my book, Hitchhiking with Larry David, actually one of the rides I got that summer was a water expert who picked me up and told me this, and that was seven years ago. She said, water's going to be before oil. Everyone thinks it'll be oil, but it's water. Water's next. And I was like, Wow. Well, all we can do is what your dear friend and uh, brother Ram Dass said is be here now, right? And take do the best we can with what's happening in the now and be, be the change, be the one that does something. Don't sit there and go fetal. I know I want to sometimes, but go out. Yeah. Be the change we want to see in the world and be the leaders and awakeners and edifiers 
and peacemakers and healers that we wish to see and meet in the world. Otherwise, who's going to do it? And of course, we have some great exemplars, you know, but still we can't leave it to the 1% or the 1.1% if we don't do it, especially today in our great, you know, quote, democratic, egalitarian era. And let me assure you, I put that in quotes because there are parts of the world that may not have yet entered that democratic, egalitarian era. But um, in general, we're doing better than in the Middle Ages or the uh, time of the rule of kings and queens. So there is hope. And um, although, I don't know, global capitalism is a mixed bag and so forth and World Trade Organization, all that very controversial, but it has issues. But notice how involved we are in countries we never could deal with, never as a tool. We didn't deal well before in the last 50 years, like Russia, communist China, even Cuba now. So there's an opening. There's an opportunity here. Um, the American business interests are big in China and these places. So we do could have some leverage if we had a little more a long-term vision rather than just thinking about the quick bottom line. We could have some real leverage over those countries and whether they have freedom of information and whether they have of free markets or controlled capitalism like they have in China, which is far from what we think of as a free market economy. So people are suffering there. And if you go there with the cell phone, it just won't log on to um, Google and places that are not um, controlled, what's the word, you know, edited by the party. Censored, yeah, censorship. That's not censored. The Internet is very censored still there, and that's a big... You know, behind the bamboo curtain is still a big segment of the population. So I think there's a lot of leverage we could do from the world trade or the Western countries, democratic countries' point of view. But who has the will to do it? Just like what politicians have the will to do something that the NRA doesn't approve of, about gun control, because it will cost them too many votes. And they might not get reelected to their job in the Congress or Senate. So we really have to think this through and do something about it for the long term. Otherwise, we're going to keep being afflicted by the amount of gun violence we have, which has come to characterize our nation, um, the environmental issues, the prison problems. You know, Black Lives Matter is a nice movement, but I don't know that it's changing anything really in Washington about our laws. This is very uh, bothersome to me. I know we're all concerned about the mass shootings on Canton schools and other places in our country. And we assume it's just one or it's just a spate of them. No, this is our new national character, and it's not even that new. This is going to continue, I'm afraid, unless we really change. Somehow it doesn't happen in Canada or England where there are very few guns per capita. In our country, I think we have over 350 or 400 million guns. There's more than one gun per person. And I don't have a gun. I don't know if you have a gun. There's probably a lot of... No, I don't. No. Toddlers that don't have guns. So that means there's a lot of people that have a, a lot of a, more than one gun. Noam Chomsky talked about people that are so afraid they can't even go to the coffee store to get a cup of coffee without carrying a firearm. I'm Jewish on my parents' side, so I visited Israel a lot. I taught led, and I've been invited to teach and lead and meditation retreats there in the desert on Mount Olives. I've been talks and teachings there. 
I'm very familiar with what it feels like to be visiting there and even living there a little. You know, people I know live there. And it's a constant state of siege for many generations. Is that what we want in this country or anywhere? I mean, we really have to think about this. Anyway, I'm really thinking of these days about how to get out what they call the yoga vote, meaning the people who have Eastern thought connection, whether it's yoga, meditation, vegetarianism, acupuncture, any kind of what, you know, they demographically they call the yoga vote. How we can vote for the right candidate who will vote in our interest, candidate and candidate. And I think that's very important for each of us to be informed citizens and not foolishly vote against our interests like people often do based on a sound bite or some shock radio, and they vote for somebody who takes away their social services or the things that them and their family actually depend on. Yeah, because they want to pray in schools or they don't want someone who's gay somewhere to marry. Or it's crazy. Right, because somebody's shouting about gay matters, they vote for them, and then they they cut down their benefits. There's no more this, that, and the other thing. And these people say, what happened? I hate the government, the very person they vote for. So we need to be informed citizens and engaged Buddhists, actually Buddhists, but engaged Buddhists, not enraged Buddhists, acting just out of anger and reactivity, but very purposeful and responsive and um, resilient, not easily giving up, and mindfulness and loving kindness and awareness techniques have been proven scientifically with, with brain science, neuroscience tests to help us be more resilient, unselfish, kind, compassionate, and aware and awakeful and even effective in various ways. But that's very important for us today to be able to do something ourselves, just like staying healthy, exercising, eating right, and all is very important for each of us, not just for the health of the whole. If somebody any age asked you and they said, I love what you're saying, Lama, and Paul's talking about here, um, what basic advice would you give me to help me connect uh, to myself or the source so I can start to cultivate this sort of mindful living and mindful awareness? Can you just give me, uh, you know, a tip or two or some guidelines? I'm, and I'm going to go get your book, but I, is there anything you could tell me here? I'm listening. I'm on my way to work or I'm sitting at home. I didn't watch reality TV tonight. I tuned into the polycast. Do I have to just tell you for free? I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sure. I'll get my rewards from good karma, I'm sure. Um, we'll we'll set up a, 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 a fundraising campaign for you. <laughs> yes. Um, even right now, wherever you are, you don't even have to close your eyes to this. Have a moment of mindfulness, a moment of peace. Just take a deep breath, breathe, relax, and smile. Just breathe, relax, and smile. Just breathe deeply. Feel it in your body. Come down out of the conning tower, the ivory tower of your head. Breathe. Feel it in your lower belly. Breathe. Relax. Let go. Let be. And smile. If you think this is too simplistic, if you're if you're a deep mystic, go a little deeper. Breathe, relax, center, focus, and smile. That's the whole instant meditation in one. Please relax, center, focus, and smile. And somebody asked me once, Lama, well, what's the difference between center and focus? I said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it an engineering project? 
<laughs> you gotta take it lightly. You gotta lighten up as well as you lighten up, Paul. Why are you so dead? Make me one with everything, baby. And all of us. <laughs> Make you one with everything. Exactly. It's funny, when I close my eyes, breathe, and smile, I feel like whatever I really am is always right there. It's right there. It's always right there. It's right there. It's right there below the mind and the concerns. That's good. You've yeah. been practicing this for a long time. Not everybody experiences it. So mm-hmm. it takes a little patience. That's why it's called practice, routine, practice, doing to get repetition. Practice makes perfect, as they say. I go further. Practice is perfect. Just do it. Like Mike, just do it. Like Nike, just do it. But, you know, uh, it has its own rewards. Just do it. Enjoy it. This is not penance. Breathe, relax, and smile. You deserve it. Have an instant meditation, a one-minute moment of mindfulness, or if you want to call it, five seconds, ten seconds, twenty seconds, a minute. Who doesn't have time for that? You don't have time to wake up early in the morning and do it before your four kids get up. I love it. Simple. Breathe, relax, don't you focus, smile. You can do it in the car. You can do it with your eyes open. You can do it while standing on the corner waiting for the light to change or waiting in an elevator. You can do it in the middle of a court battle. You don't have to wait for lunch hour. Just breathe, relax. You don't even have to close your eyes. If you close your eyes, that's good, but you might be in a court room. You don't want to close your eyes or you want to get the driving wheel. Just breathe, relax, center, focus, smile. So simple. So free. Breath is sacred. Spirit toast. Spirit toast. Inspire. Expire. Breathing. The breath of life. God's breath. Your breath. It's a miracle. It's so revivifying. Vitalized. This is not overly simplistic, I tell you. If I told you, if I described this in Tibetan, it would sound better, but that's what it comes down to. I love it, though. It's so, it's, it's presence. Presence. Be and talk. Yes, it's the practice of presence. Yes. It's not just meditation, which people think and assume you have to do sitting quiet with your eyes closed. No, it's meditation and action. It's beyond meditation. It's the union of prayer, meditation, introspection, and love. It's the way of loving ourselves, befriending ourselves in the world, loving kindness, being kind to ourselves and each other. Non-aggression, just being. We're not being very aggressive at that moment. Mm-hmm. It's a non-aggression pact with ourselves at the moment, and it could spread. And I hope it does. Hey, here's a left-field question I've never asked or even thought to ask you. What do you think happens when the form dies? Uh, the form, you mean when your body dies? Yeah, when the body just says, all right, that's it, I'm done. Well, there's a lot to say about that. I know you're not talking about what happens physically. You can read about that in various ways, in tradition, scientific and spiritual but it seems to me that I didn't just begin when I popped out of my mommy's womb, and nor did you, and I don't just end when I breathe my last. Now, I'm leaving a pregnant pause there for people to think about that, and I will help you think about it. Oh, that's true. You were kind of there the day before you mm. popped out, and for a few months or even nine months, who knows? Where, where does it begin? Very hard to say. Oh, so it's not that simple that I was born on the day I was born. And, oh, maybe I don't just die when I breathe my last. There are a lot of research and, 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 and um, information and people testify about near-death experiences and 
going down the tunnel of light and then coming back after they quote read their last was declared brain dead. Oh, there were Air Force pilots who've been downed in the Arctic Sea and not breathed for, for 10 or 15 minutes, but because of the cold, they've been brought back to life. Oh, they didn't? What happened when they breathed their last? There was still something animated, like consciousness, even unconscious, spirit, soul. What word can we use? So in Tibetan Buddhism, we call it the clear light. If we say clear light of the mind, it sounds too mental, like thinking. No. It's the animating principle, the spirit, the consciousness, the clear light. We say it's the clear light body or the clear light mind that continues, that carries the body spin or the karmic conditioning towards other existences, so-called next life, rebirth. So that's what I think happens. But we need to look into this for ourselves, who we are, where we come from, where we begin, and where we end. I mean, just look at how much we've changed since we were children, infants, teenagers, young adults, whatever. What's the continuity in that? You say, I. Is it your body? It's changed entirely. Is it your mind? Your mind has changed entirely, too. Is it your spirit? Well, it's hard to grab a hold of that. What is that formless, like, luminous, quote, thing? Some people call it the soul. That's not a Buddhist sacred word, but some kind of non-thing. So... If we knew who we were and what continues for our 30, 60, 90 years of life, we might understand what continues when we breathe our last. And what I just said, that sense you could take to the bank. If and when we look into ourselves and realize and find out who and what we are, what continues mm. from our younger years until now with all of our different names that we go through in roles in life and physical changes, even if we're under the same name still, if we know who and what we are that continues, we will understand and experientially know we will block, we will block and grasp what continues. And then we're not a separate thing. It's like the ripples in the river, they continue, but they merge and they keep changing and merging. It's like from our younger years until now, we've kept changing and merging, but kind of the same continuity or flow, same river, which is different from the sea. The ripple, you know, each of us is a little different from the current, and the current is different than the sea, and so forth. So we think a little more nuanced way and look into the nature of self and soul and other thought or totality flow can be very, very rewarding. That's what I recommend on kind of a self-inquiry or who dies, who are we really practice level. Besides just mindfulness or... Mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of talking, walking, and eating. Besides just yoga and meditation and prayer and good deeds and love and kindness in action. Really looking into and doing a U-turn and being a little less outwardly directed sometimes. Looking into the mirror of the infinite or of emptiness and seeing who and what we truly are. Looking at the projector, not just at the silver screen and its projections as we usually do. And then we can enjoy the whole movie better and we understand the whole, it's a relationship. The projector is also part of it. Without the screen, you can't say much about the light show or the film or the story. So I hope we're communicating. That's beautiful. And looking, I heard the clear light of being and 
we are the clear light of being, and then we are rippled nuances in the great infinite sea of being. And when we identify ourselves with that and that sacred timeless self and see it as all connected, we would move through the world in a much different way, the way we would interact. We would be nonviolent because we would be self-violence. And even in a personal way, we would be nonviolent towards ourselves in thought and deed and action and what we ate in joyful forgiveness for just our ripple, the way our ripples contour. And we would take moral judgment away from that. And we could joyfully exist here, or like someone once said, the joy, be a joyful participant in the sorrows of the world. Because we just look, we see it as the great projection and we're in touch with it. And then if the plant in front of us needed watering, we'd water it. If the person in front of us was hungry, we would feed them. We would nurture our own light and bring that light. We wouldn't be selfish with it. We would pour into the world that light because we'd be pouring it onto ourselves. There wouldn't be any outer other. There is no other. And even under the illusion of the other. It's relational. Yeah. Yeah. Something other, you know, like the projector and the projections. And yeah. Relational. And that's why it really, um, you know, I hate to boil things down to one word, but it's really all about love. Well, that's been the big word for about 5,000 years, don't you think? That's the Buddha, Christ, everybody. Something must be there. It holds up. Yeah. Love is reciprocal, and love is, you know, so many mm. things. It's not just oneself. And we need others to get enlightened. We need others to experience union, oneness, and other things. So it's not just about going inwards. Of course, if you dig deep enough anywhere, you hit the water table. But, you know, water is everywhere, in the clouds and all around us, too, and in our bodies even, I guess, 98% water, but you see what I'm saying. So let's not be simplistic about about just digging Mm. all the time or being alone all the time. You know, man cannot live by spirit alone, Paul. Take my word for it. I've tried. I was a monk at the Tibetan monasteries and other things. We need yeah. each other to get enlightened, to develop wisdom and empathy and loving kindness and, you know, generosity and unselfishness, as well as awaken within our own body wisdom and psychic intuitions and sacred Gnosis or direct knowing, like uh, transcendent wisdom. No words can encompass it, really. Discriminating awareness. So we see things, but we also see through them. So we understand the true nature of all things, but also how they interact, Mm. interdependent causation, what we call in Asia karma. Causation. There are no accidents. Everything has causes, and if we affect the causes, we get different results, which is, in a way, the secret, even of the happiness that we seek, not to mention greater fulfillment or nirvanic peace or have repurposing and course correction, working more intelligently and awarefully, wisely with the causes, brings us different results. And it's a basic principle of health even. Physical health, mental health, spiritual health. Depends on us. It's not an accident and it's not imposed or above nor is it predestined or already written some script, divine script. But we just have to look into this for ourselves and, 
as grown-ups and mentors in the world to take responsibility for our beliefs and understanding and the results that we get in our lives. Beautiful. Beautiful. Self-reliance, self-responsibility, cause and effect, and it all comes down to love. Well, I honestly love you. You're nothing but a joy every time I've ever bumped into you. I'm just thinking about you. It makes me smile and... You're one of the warmest people I've ever met with a great sense of humor. And I'm just curious. I wonder where we're going to meet next. Is it going to be in the Maldives or? I don't know. I've never been, I've, I've never been, I've never been there. I've been in a lot of dives and I've been in plenty of malls more than I want. But <laughs> I've never been to the Maldives, so why not? I don't know. You hit back there? Me neither, and I don't mean the mall, a dive in the mall. I mean the islands, because we always bump into each other in these exotic locations. I love it. That's our karma. Our little, our souls love it. Where are we going to meet next? And maybe it'll be on another planet somewhere that's quite exotic. Maybe it'd be Maui in December. It, it could be there, you know. We or or um, maybe on a you know interstellar galaxy thing where. We'll both have multiple dimensional existences and we'll look at each other through the light of our third eye and awareness and go, where do I know you from? Where do I know you from? And you'll say, you're the hitchhiker on planet Earth. <laughs> nanu, nanu. Lama, this has been the most incredibly beautiful experience. Thank you. Maybe we can have you back again and uh, talk further with, if, if, you're, if you were uh, generous enough to grace us with thine presence. I love you too, and I love um, being picked up and carried along on this, you know, hitchhike or this infinite journey. And uh, we got to do it together. So yes, and I look forward to seeing you again, Paul. And do I don't know, let me and my assistant know what we can do for you. And also, we'd like to have a URL or you know, a transcript or whatever, so we can pass it out to my network and my social media outreach to listen to this or to read it or whatever you call it. We will do that, and we will put on our page Lama's links and all his books and where he's going to be teaching and retreats. I would, I've read several of his works. I would strongly encourage anybody uh, who is looking for more and who isn't on some level, whether consciously or unconsciously, to look into these beautiful works from a dear soul here, Lama. Well, I have a Coming up in January on the Hudson River at Garrison Institute. We do every year for a week, so come and join us. Chen meditation every Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you all listeners for being so amazing and the beautiful Surya Das for dropping in with his incredible light of awareness and love and consciousness. We will see you back here again soon. Lots of love, everybody. Keep the love. Like the Lama says, it's all about love. This has been the Polycast with your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Please follow Paul on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And go to paulsamueldolman.com for the latest news and updates.